This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, this one has to do with the very low rental rate in Metro Vancouver. And the idea is once again being floated that maybe a solution would be people opening up spare rooms, empty rooms in their homes. There are websites and apps that help people do that, but it's not really something that's taken off in Metro Vancouver, Fraser Valley. So our hot question of the day, and this is something we're going to talk about in the next half hour of the program, is should homeowners be encouraged to open up a room in their homes to a stranger in order to help ease the housing crisis, the rental housing crisis. You can vote yes, there are too many empty rooms, or no, it's private property. Head on over to Twitter, at CKNW. I just retweeted it as well, at Jill Reports. Let me know what you think. You can also give the Buzzline a call if you want to expand on your vote a little bit. 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. And leave your answer there. Do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea? idea, opening up spare rooms in homes, renting them out. We're not talking about Airbnb or short-term rentals. This is talking about giving people permanent homes. Yes, too many empty rooms out there, or no, it's private property. Shouldn't be forced or encouraged to do such a thing. Vote now, and we will share some of your votes a bit later on in the program. If you are somebody who has been looking for a place to rent, you likely know how difficult it can be, and it's expensive. I've heard horror stories from people looking for one-bedroom places apartments, even shared accommodation. Well, in his column just posted in the Vancouver Courier, Michael Geller has written about the idea of home sharing and why there isn't more of it in Metro Vancouver and other parts where the rental rates are just so low. And Michael joins me on the line now to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, Jill. Uh, So how did you first start uh, talking about this or or looking into this, uh, the idea of perhaps expanding home sharing? In 1967, my father introduced me to the writing of Edward de Bono, and Edward de Bono was the father of lateral thinking. He encouraged creative thinking, and so I've sort of subscribed to that approach my entire life. And if you think about it, right now, it's very expensive to find accommodation, and yet at the same time, there are literally hundreds of thousands of empty bedrooms in Metro Vancouver, and people... Many people would not want to share their house or their bedrooms. Others would if they could find the right person, and it was fairly easy to arrange a tenancy. And that got me thinking, what we need are matchmaking services to marry up people looking for accommodation who maybe can only afford to pay, say, $800 a month with somebody who owns a house that has some empty rooms and would be happy to get $800 a month, especially if it also meant that person might help shovel the snow in the winter or whatever. And uh, now we have Airbnb and we have other sorts of BRBO arrangements. So people are starting to become more comfortable with the idea of at least booking temporary accommodation. And I'm thinking, why not look at ways to create more permanent accommodation using similar vehicles, online uh, websites, and so forth. Hmm. And it's interesting when you say that people are more comfortable with the temporary accommodation. I think maybe that's because when we're talking about somebody actually being in your home, we're not talking about a separate suite or a separate unit. Uh, Somebody's in your home. If it's not a great fit, at least if it's a temporary situation, you know there's an end date. 
So that's why I would also suggest that we need to think about how can we create a sort of temporary arrangement for tenancy. When you take on a new job, they don't tell you on the day one, oh, we're thrilled to have you here for the whole year or for the next five years. They say you're on probation for three months, and at the end of three months, we're both going to sit down and see, was this working? And if it's not working, uh, we're going to let you go. Why don't we do the same thing with tenancy? Somebody moves into a house. After a couple of months, you realize this isn't working. You should be allowed to to end that arrangement, not have to give them another three months' notice, etc., etc. So just because we did things in a certain way in the past doesn't mean that we should do it in the future. Uh, interesting. And, and then I guess one of the concerns would be, and not that I'm trying to be negative about it, but then where would somebody go if at the end of three months, do you have to have a second choice on the line or you'd have to have, because the whole point, the whole reason we're talking about this is because there's such a shortage of rentals. There's such a shortage of rentals, but there are a lot of empty Not only rooms, there's also a lot of empty suites out there. I know a number of people who have basement suites and they don't rent them out because it's a real hassle to find the right tenant. It's a hassle to get rid of them if they're not working out. But if we knew we could make it easier to marry people up, there was some sort of uh, easier process to select a tenant and that you weren't committed for a whole year or a number of years, I think more people would be willing to do it. So, the, my, you know, you may recall, Jill, years ago we talked about the modular housing, and that was another one of my crazy ideas. Why not set up modular units on vacant land? And people would say, yeah, but what if they need to move to build on that land? I say, fine, you'll move the housing to another piece of vacant land. Similarly, there will always be a supply of rooms and suites out there. The trick is to marry people up. Now, before someone says this is preposterous, I can tell you that in the United States, there are a number of organizations that are set up. One of them is called Nesterly, N-E-S-T-E-R-L-Y. Ironically, it was started by a young lady from Cortez Island. She's now based in Boston, and that's very active on the East Coast of the United States. And other people are starting to set this up, and I believe it's just a matter of time Think of it as a cross between uh, a dating service and Airbnb, but with more permanent residents. Hmm. It is an interesting one, although I did think about uh, this as well. When we when we talk about ride sharing, and one of the reasons our government says uh, we can't just bring in Uber like it's brought in around the world is because of safety. Uh, if they're saying we shouldn't be getting into vehicles with strangers, I can't imagine they're having uh, support for inviting strangers into our homes. Most of the people that you and I know are trustworthy. There are bad people out there, but most of us, I think, tend to be fairly trusting. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell pointed that out in his recent book, Talking to Strangers. And I think that what we will find is with a good vetting system, it's going to become easier to, to make those arrangements happen. It's not always going to be perfect. There will definitely be problems. There's no doubt about it. But uh, on the North Shore, uh, the Hollyburn Family Services is operating a service right now where it's attempting to match seniors who are looking for accommodation with other seniors who have, have homes. Uh, when I mentioned this to someone, they said, you mean like the Golden Girls? Yes, a little <laughs> bit like the Golden Girls. And again, no, it's not going to work for everybody. Absolutely not. 
But I do think there's some potential because if we were to try and build the amount of accommodation we currently have in empty rooms, someone has estimated it would take 15 years. There's a lot of vacant accommodation out there. And uh, I think there's great potential for this. And I think people would agree, but what, a key point that you just said was that it's not for everybody. I think no, I think there are people who would say, that's fine if people want to sign on to this and there's the safety checks and balances, but we shouldn't go into an area where people are made to feel bad because they might have an empty room or they don't want to share their home. Absolutely not. But my, and I admit I come with a bias. Uh, uh, my first job was at CMHC, and I moved into a development in Ottawa called Pestalozzi College. And half of the building had six-room and 14-room kind of co-op units, and the other half was all one-bedroom apartments. And I shared a one-bed. I first lived in a six-unit co-op. I then moved to a one-bedroom apartment with a French-Canadian law student. And the reason we could share a one-bedroom apartment is because there was a door to the living room you think about it most apartments we build today don't have a door to the living room but simply by having a door to the living room it was possible for the two of us to share this one apartment we shared the kitchen and the bathroom and i did that for a year until i moved away so my point is a lot of people would say oh i would never want to live with someone else in my case, it was not just financial. It was terrific to live with a French-Canadian law student who introduced me to a whole world that I might otherwise have never experienced. Uh, and it is interesting you mentioned that because I think it's, a, it's very much a North American thing that we tend to live with our parents. You, many people are just itching to get out of the family home to be on their own. It's not as encouraged or as, as, as norm here to, to have multi-people dwellings than it is elsewhere. You say that, except if you were to go up and down Fraser Street or probably up and down many streets, you'll find a lot of uh, dwellings that are notionally single-family dwellings with maybe five or six unrelated people living together. You know, in the 70s, we called them communes, but I know for a fact, because my daughter lived in one of these, there's a lot of shared accommodation throughout uh, uh, Metro Vancouver, up at SFU, where I was involved with the university project. A lot of those two and three bedroom uh, apartments are being occupied by three or four students. They're all sharing and they're managing. And you say, well, they're students, but it also there's other younger people. They can afford $800 a month, but they can't afford 1800 And the way I, the reason I wrote this column, as you will have recalled, I got a call from a young lady in Montreal. She's a flight attendant moving to Vancouver, shocked at the price of housing, upset with all the scams online, and said she would love to find a room in a house. You know, did I have any ideas as to how I might help her? And I said, yes, I'll write a newspaper Mm -hmm. column and see what response I get. And I can tell you already, a number of people have come forward, including one person affiliated with the newspaper, to say, you know, I may have something for this young lady. So if anybody out there was looking to rent a room on the Canada line to a flight attendant for Montreal, let me know. (laughs) All right. Well, let's leave it there. And I, I think you might get some responses to that. Michael, thanks so much. Great to chat with you. Anytime, Jill. Bye-bye. Michael Geller, a columnist in the Vancouver Courier. You can read that column about the idea of promoting more home sharing.
Well, we mentioned this yesterday. It was the first park board meeting of 2020 and Oppenheimer Park was not officially on the agenda, although there are still many, many questions as to the future of the park and what is going to be happening there next. Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Chrissy Brett, who is a liaison for people who living who are living in the park. Chrissy, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Uh, it wasn't officially on the agenda last night. We did hear from the park board that the third party consultant brought in uh, is working away or that there is work on that front. Uh, what do you know as far as the uh, immediate future or perhaps even distant future of what's going to be happening there? I think we welcome anyone like the park board who's willing to work with people to create supports here, um, maybe some paid peer support for people in the overdose prevention site, the warming tent that has been set up completely by donations and volunteers. So the city um, council and park board both put in motions that were granted um, that there be a warming tent here at Oppenheimer. They've been unable to do so and figure out how to make that happen. And yet this community has. So we welcome any type of support that is actually going to be supporting people here on the ground while working towards permanent long-term housing for people. Are you concerned at all that the warming tent presents a danger, that there's the danger of fire? I am more concerned about people dying of hypothermia. There was a woman who was banned out of some of the warming centers, was not allowed in, and was sleeping in the snow outside of the women's bathroom. And she was there for six hours. In the evening when we finally got her to come and stand around the ceremonial fire, that's all we had until two gentlemen decided to come down with heaters and some tea to sort of give some people some sense of humanity that they didn't see the city providing. And we set up the warming tent. And is she okay? She's okay. We have found tents for people who were living in the bathroom because their tents collapsed in the freezing rain and the snow. We have a warming center that is the warmest warming center here because most of them are dry, but they're definitely not warm because the door is open and people are coming and going all the time. I've gone over to um, a couple of them and they're not definitely room temperature. You People have their coats on and it's definitely not a place to dry out. Um, we had our first set of officials that attended our off-site meeting um, in a collaborative way and that was BC Ambulance, and they talked about how just being damp and wet like heightens your risk of hypothermia. So there's absolutely no science behind the city's warming centers opening at minus 5 or at 0. You can get hypothermia in the summer on a cool evening if you're cold and damp and wet. And Chrissy, how many people would you say are living in the park right now? There's 100 or so at any given time. We were about 150, and just in the weather, some people's tents have collapsed, so people are bunking up together, and when there's a enough room, there's people that have been able to couch surf in SROs, but that is not a long-term solution for them. So when the weather clears and we get some more semblance to the park, I'm sure they'll be back. And as far as a long-term solution, because we are hearing more, uh, the Strathcona Business Association people in that neighborhood would like the park to be returned so that everybody can use it. How do we get to that place? 
I think that having a discussion and some com- community consultation about what parks look like for different people. I think that maybe there should be parks that are more children oriented or people with disabilities or seniors with mobility issues. But there also needs to be places for people who are in the downtown east side. This is historically sort of over the past number of years been a downtown east side park. And not to say that it can't have children playing in it, and we have children playing in it now, but if it's ever returned to a park, I'd like to see some more adult-oriented, like, stabilizing programs for people in the downtown east side. All right. And we need to make a space for everyone to belong and say that if you're poor or if you're homeless, you don't belong in a park and there can never be a park that you ever belong in is not something that's acceptable to me in 2020. All right. And it's not my reconciliation. All right, Chrissy, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time, but thank you uh, so much. That's Chrissy Brett, liaison for residents uh, currently living in Oppenheimer Park. All right, well, as you've been hearing in the news, the first human case connected to the coronavirus coming out of China has been detected in Washington State. That is the new respiratory virus, and this is according to media reports that we are getting from south of the border. So what can be done as this deadly disease travels past China? China's border again confirmed the first case in Washington state. CKNW contributor Claire Allen spoke today with Dr. Danuta Skavronsky, an epidemiologist and lead of influenza and emerging respiratory pathogens at the BC Center for Disease Control about what we know about the coronavirus and what we can do right here in BC to protect ourselves. We've been hearing over and over again getting a flu shot helps, although we do understand a flu shot for this particular type of virus doesn't actually do anything. So with the more and more flights coming and going between Canada and China, and now with this confirmation of a case in Washington state, what can we do? Here is that conversation between Claire and Dr. Skavronsky. So Dr. Skavronsky, there's been a lot of concern in the news about this coronavirus and how it is spreading in China. Uh, Reports out today saying that six people have died from the disease and that there are some signs that it can be passed from human to human contact. I'm just wondering how this disease presents itself. This coronavirus is like other coronaviruses in that it causes respiratory illness Uh, typically fever and dry cough with headache and sore throat. What is different about this coronavirus from other well-known coronavirus infections in humans, which are typically associated with common cold-like symptoms, is that this coronavirus in a subset has been associated with more severe manifestations, uh, more critical illness, people experiencing shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, and chest x-rays showing um, pneumonia affecting both lungs. Uh, So in that sense, it's unclear because this is a novel coronavirus about which we have known uh, nothing prior to a month ago when this virus first emerged. We don't know whether this coronavirus ultimately will show the features of other humanized coronaviruses 
or whether it will follow the trajectory of the SARS coronavirus, which was also associated with more severe manifestations. Right. So you mentioned the SARS outbreak. Um, How does the coronavirus compare to the SARS outbreak? Or is it too early to tell? It's too early to tell whether the clinical features and how this virus spreads will be similar to SARS. It is genetically, it is in the same family as the SARS uh, coronavirus and other SARS-like coronaviruses that are found in bats, which are the natural reservoir of a multitude of coronaviruses that have never before infected humans. It's likely that this coronavirus has also somehow, if we trace it back far enough, come from bats, perhaps through some other intermediary animal into humans. But this is not the SARS coronavirus. It is a a distinct virus, a new virus that has never before infected humans. That's why we're so interested in this virus. We don't want another coronavirus that's able to adapt to humans and becoming a human, a regular human infection, particularly one that has been associated with severe illness. Right, definitely. That sounds uh, very scary when you put it that way. It's not scary at this point. I mean, we do have to bear in mind there's been about 300 cases reported now out of China and six deaths. If you put that into context with the tens of millions of people in those regions, it it doesn't seem like it is a major threat. The reason that we are concerned about it in public health is right now it's associated with several hundred cases. We don't want it to become more than that. We don't want it to be able to adapt fully to humans Uh, It has shown some limited human-to-human spread um, uh, within certain contexts or conditions, and the extent of further human-to-human transmission, we're still working out, but we want to prevent that. We want, to the extent possible, to contain it, and we want the success, actually, of SARS, though it didn't feel like it at the time, of stamping out this novel coronavirus the way we did with SARS in driving it back into nature and ceasing all further human-to-human transmission back in 2003. It took several months and huge effort to achieve that, and we still have a shot at driving this virus also back into nature and stopping human cases. Right. And I know you said we shouldn't be scared, but I know that um, in the media, they're saying that the concern is that this outbreak is coinciding with the Lunar New Year, which is a very popular time for people in China to travel throughout the country or internationally. Um, So I think, you know, there's some concern that this could spread past the borders of, of, of China and the outbreak could spread internationally. So when you say you know, don't be scared. I mean, some people are very worried. And I guess what you're saying is that maybe we shouldn't be worried about that. Well, don't get me wrong. It's not that I lack concern about this. I am concerned. And you're right that with the upcoming Lunar New Year festivals and the mass travel, there is potential for this to 
amplify further. But that's why it is so important that within Canada, we are messaging uh, appropriately both to travelers abroad, um, as well as to our frontline clinicians who may be uh, seeing travelers returning from uh, Wuhan or, or other areas, depending upon how this further evolves, uh, who uh, have fever and respiratory illness. Uh, we want our clinicians to be alert. Uh, we want our airport authorities also to be appropriately screening. And together, uh, as long as we stay on guard and don't let our guard down, uh, early detection and containment of cases is the major goal of our public health response. Uh, and is still considered achievable until advised otherwise. And the WHO will be meeting uh, this week as well to uh, discuss uh, uh, response measures. Right, and you mentioned uh, airport authorities and their role in this, um, you know, making sure that this outbreak does not spread. Um, How confident are we in the screening process at the airport? I, I imagine you know, there are new tools out there since we had the SARS outbreak. I know there was screening for Ebola that I actually went through when I was in Africa. How um, how confident are we in what is in place at airports now to detect these viruses? I think we're doing what is humanly feasible. Uh, and, you know, nothing is foolproof. But the screening uh, is being undertaken and we are keeping our airport authorities uh, as alert as possible. You know, the screening will be undertaken in Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver, although there are actually no direct flights from Wuhan to any Canadian cities. That screening will be occurring in case there are those traveling from Wuhan, perhaps indirectly to those cities. But, you know, it doesn't stop at the airport authority screening. Uh, as I say, we have also been um, uh, reinforcing repeatedly, reinforcing messages to our frontline clinicians. I, I myself have probably sent out six or seven bulletins already, uh, not only to the airport authorities, but also to emergency rooms, infection control practitioners across the province uh, to keep this on their radar, to, to keep them alert, make them think and uh, remind them that uh, they are to notify the local medical health officer in their area of anyone with a fever and respiratory illness uh, returning from uh, Wuhan or other relevant exposures as uh, these become apparent to us. So, you know, together we have a shot at containing this. Um, the news is changing, the information is changing on a regular basis, and, and we're keeping everyone as informed as possible real time. So, Dr. Skrivansky, what can we do to protect ourselves? Well, our message foremost in relation to these cases of uh, pneumonia associated with this novel coronavirus in China are targeted towards travelers in in terms of the general population. In fact, for the general population of Canada, the risk otherwise is low. This this is not a community-level threat 
so far in China and, and, and certainly not in Canada at this point. We've not detected any cases. So for travelers, um, those are the individuals that we mostly want to uh, reinforce good uh, practices, uh, including staying away from live animal markets or other live animal contact or uh, consuming uncooked animal products. Um, that, that's just a general um, uh, uh, recommendation that applies at all times, and in particular given that we don't know what the animal source is of this uh, coronavirus currently um, in China. And when travelers are returning, if they are ill, they have a duty to disclose that to the border service authorities. And if they're seeking medical care, they have a duty to report that in advance to their care provider to ensure that uh, they get the proper care and uh, that others around them are also protected. Great. Well, that, those are some great tips. And thanks so much for sharing all this information with me. I really appreciate it. No problem. And again, one confirmed case in Washington state. Coming up this half hour, we are hoping to get an update on the procedures so far on the Senate trial, the impeachment trial of U.S. President Donald Trump. A lot of back and forth at this point over the trial rules and whether or not the rules proposed, any changes to those rules are similar to those that Bill Clinton faced in 1999. Yes, way back in 1999. So we are attempting to check in with Reggie Cicchini, who is in Washington and who has been keeping uh, tabs on this. Uh, Take a listen to this report just before we connect with him uh, filing uh, about the last minute changes that have been introduced. At the start of today's trial, it was announced that there would be a change to the timeline for opening statements. Each side will have 24 hours to speak, but spread over three days now, not two, eliminating the need for an overnight sitting. There's also been an amendment to allow for some evidence to automatically be admitted to the record, barring no objection. This comes amid concerns that the Senate leader was trying to stop documents already made public during the House inquiry from being discussed. The President's Defense Counsel maintains Donald Trump did nothing wrong in his request for investigations nor the withholding of military aid. While House prosecutors will argue that the President is stepping on their constitutional duty to provide a check and balance. It's still unclear if any witness testimony will be included. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So at this point, uh, not uh, no evidence to really talk about. We're still dealing with the rules and the perhaps change in the rules. Thought it was an interesting quote from Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, who earlier said that Republicans want a, quote, trial with no existing evidence and no new evidence. And he went on to say a trial without evidence is not a trial. It's a cover up. All right, let's check in now with Reggie Cicchini, who has been covering this. So Reggie, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. Good morning. Uh, Just listen to your report talking about some of the changes, moving it from three days to two days. That means there won't be a need for an overnight sitting. Uh, Where else do things stand right now is trying to get these rules set? Well, I mean, we're only in kind of the first hour of uh, this trial starting up, and the President's Defense Council has kind of worked their way through a couple of members who are representing Donald Trump to basically explain their uh, feelings and opinions towards how this rule book has been brought forward. Uh, the, the extending it from two days to three days is a big deal. That is something that Democrats have been pushing for, fearing that uh, Republican leadership was simply trying to expedite this and make it go a little quicker and would have forced everyone to sit through the overnight hours 
Wars, and they called that a cover-up, saying it was trying to keep people in the dark, literally, by doing this in the midnight hour. Now that that's not happening, that's one win for the Democrats. We also now know that evidence is going to be brought forward uh, from the House impeachment inquiry, which was another fight between Democrats saying, how can we bring uh, an impeachment trial forward if we're if we aren't allowed to bring the facts that brought us to this point onto the floor? Uh, which I think is what led again to that uh, quote from Chuck Schumer saying uh, we need the evidence at the trial. It's not a trial without that evidence. Um, can you talk a little bit about the focus that's being put on this, about having rules similar to the rules that President Clinton faced in 1999? Why wouldn't those rules already just be in place or why does it seem that we have to start from scratch? Well, when the House carries out an impeachment inquiry, there are rules that are basically set in stone that are constitutional that they have to follow. The Senate rules are a little more fluid. They're allowed to kind of make them up in the moments before the trial actually starts up. And the issue here is, uh, and depending on, you know, what side you're on, there aren't a lot of impeachments to be able to go by. You have to go by the precedent that was set in the most recent impeachment because they are so few and far between. So, Democrats were saying, here are the rules that were uh, put forward by unanimous consent with all 100 senators back in Bill Clinton's era. Now the rules are being amended to what Democrats say, particularly Democrat uh, minority leadership, uh, saying are built for and designed by what appears to be the president. So they wanted to ensure that there was going to be a fair trial here, because unlike in the Bill Clinton days, people's minds here are very crystallized. They're very uh, solidified in their opinions of the president. So they just wanted to ensure that there was going to be an air of fairness here, not just the majority Republicans getting their own way and doing the trial the way they wanted to. Uh, which makes sense. Do you get the sense that obviously there's not agreement on everything on the rules and how things should play out, but do you get the sense they will reach that uh, that agreement? There is a possibility. I think the only thing that's up in the air right now is whether or not witness testimony is going to be allowed. During the Clinton impeachment, there were a number of witnesses who were deposed, and then the transcripts were released to the public, and ultimately some of the tape was then played back during the uh, Senate trial. Right now, we're waiting to see if there is actually going to be an allowance for witnesses right now, because the uh, Republicans have said there's going to have to be a vote in order to allow witnesses to come forward. Democrats don't have the numbers on their side to get some somebody like John Bolton to come and testify. Republicans would have to join Democrats. And that's where the kind of question is up in the air. Is there enough kind of political persuasion to pull some of those moderate Republicans to the Democratic side to allow somebody like John Bolton, who was intricately involved in this uh, Ukraine scandal, to come forward? He could provide information that helps, possibly hurts the president. And I think that's where the hesitation is on the Republican side. Uh, which you might look at that. Uh, anybody looking at this just from the outside would think the more information, the better. If it's relevant to this case, if it's documents about uh, President Trump's dealings with Ukraine, if it's a witness testimony that's about that, you would think it would be a no-brainer that it would be included. Absolutely. And I think the question has to be raised. If this was a Democratic president right now, if this were Hillary Clinton, if this was Barack Obama, would Republicans be demanding there to be witness testimony to be able to speak to, you know, what would be flipped around Republican allegations of a president putting U.S. national security at risk? That's one of the big questions that needs to be asked with this. And public sentiment is actually on Democrats' side right now. More than seven in 10 Americans actually want to see witness testimony or at least hear from 
some witnesses, whether or not it's via transcript or live in person. And that includes almost 50 percent of Republicans that were polled. This is going to be a big number. If Republicans don't allow for any witness testimony to come forward, that could be something that plays against them in a very important election year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it then is it oversimplifying it to say people are literally are they running around right now trying to see if they have the votes, trying to see where they might be able to sway the votes? There is a little bit of a whip going on right now. It's a little more difficult when they're actually sitting in the room because they've been told per these rules they're not allowed to bring uh, electronics in with them they're not allowed to talk out loud they have to sit quietly with pens and papers only so potentially maybe they're passing notes around to each other but democrats have really been trying in the last few days to bring these moderate republicans over somebody like senator susan collins from maine who is up for election this year who's faced an uphill battle for siding with the president on things uh, like the appointment of brett kavanaugh to the supreme court has really seen uh, her numbers fall a little bit and has seen opposition to her start to rise with people who are trying to challenge her with the election. So there is an opportunity for Democrats to pull some of them over. It just simply, you know, Donald Trump has a uh, a stronghold on this Republican Party and his name on a ticket ultimately can lead to somebody winning or being blown off a ticket if he says something wrong about them. So it's a party right now that is no longer kind of aligned with the party. They're simply aligned with their leader. Hmm. And just to, to go back, what this is all about, as we know, it's abuse of power and obstruction of Congress allegations. So the, the three days now that it's been expanded to the three days, do you have a sense of the timeline after that point? We don't, and that's because of the fluidity when it comes to the possibility for getting a witness on the floor. If there is going to be a witness, it has to go to a vote. That would have to go behind closed doors. A deposition takes place, and then a secondary vote to see whether or not it's going to happen. If that is the case, this is going to go on possibly a couple of weeks. If we wind up with no witness testimony here, this could be something that wraps up before the State of the Union at the beginning of February, uh, and we could be in closing arguments possibly within a week here. That's kind of that expedited process the president has really been pushing for over the last couple of weeks. So now that we're into day one, we can kind of get the sense as how the tone is going to be set. But we really have to wait to see what kind of amendments are brought forth and whether or not Democrats can get Republicans on their side. All right. Well, we'll be waiting for your updates. And thank you so much for joining us to spell it out for us today. Reggie, thanks a lot. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, he is the Global News Washington correspondent, and he will keep us up to date on what is happening with the Senate impeachment trial. You might remember back in December, a committee at the United Nations, it's the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, released a directive, and that directive called for three natural resource projects here in B.C. to be shut down immediately included in those projects the coastal gas link natural pipeline which we've been talking about a lot in the news well one of the elected chiefs along that route is now blasting that directive the one that calls for the pipeline to be shut down and joining me is crystal smith chief of the heisla nation thank you so much for being with us today thank you for having me what was your first reaction when you saw that directive coming from that committee Unfortunately, it wasn't one of um, shock per se. Uh, It's not the first time that any of the projects have been put into perspective where uh, both sides or not all sides of the story have been have been looked at closely. So um, initial reaction is the the condescending aspect of taking one one side, one view uh, and, and essentially dismaying all of the work that has gone into the support of this project by the 20 nations that the the 20 elected leadership along the pipeline uh, support. And, And sorry, go ahead. And not only the the support of it, but 
the amount of years, time, and effort uh, in terms of our due diligence, uh, ensuring that uh, the, the project goes ahead in, in our terms, in our territory, all, all that work that had, has gone into it um, on our side, uh, totally dismayed it within that process and with those announcements. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that does sometimes get lost in the conversation and that the decision to support that particular project wasn't one that was made overnight. I imagine that was one made by the Heisla Nation after a lot of uh, looking at it, a lot of discussion, a lot of research. How much, uh, how was that process of leading up to the decision to support it? approximately five to seven years of effort on on all sides, whether it was political or technical. I always go back to the the permit. One of the permits actually took 78 meetings between the regulatory bodies, the the proponents, and and our technical teams to work out those environmental issues that that were foreseen in terms of those discussions of of how our culture, our, our um, knowledge of our territory was going to be respected within that within that process of the permit being issued. Now, 78 meetings, that doesn't amount to the amount of time, travel, um, and effort that, gone, that had gone into that um, one permit. So you, you multiply what we can, what we've done here in Kitimat to the other 19 nations along the pipeline in, in terms of their due diligence and their work and their concerns being addressed and and brought to the forefront of solutions coming to where the elected leadership felt that it the the proponent had got those discussions to a point where they were comfortable to proceed with with the project right uh, the reaction to the united nations committee and this uh, this directive to shut down the projects i think on on the one hand it's been met with a lot of of criticism and a lot of people saying you didn't do any research what are you even talking about what right do we think you even have to be issuing a directive about projects in bc a lot more focus has been paid on the opposition by the hereditary chiefs uh, opposing what elected leaders like yourself are in favor of what do you say about that ongoing battle I mean, the, the ongoing ballot battle is the fact that, you know, elected leadership, whether whether you're elected or hereditary, we all have a responsibility to the, to the people in our nations. And it's not the support of the project had come with any type of malice or, or any type of, um, you know, thought of not, uh, of, of negative impact. It's one that, like I expressed, came with a lot of, work, effort, and time um, to ensure that every aspect of the project was taken care of with the forethought of our people benefiting of having a solution that's provided to them. Uh, Elected leaders are continuously looked at uh, to provide opportunity and to to improve the quality of the lives of our people. And we have a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity presented in front of us that that we need to grasp this to ensure that our people of today and future generations have better opportunities than we have had in the past. Uh, we were chatting yesterday uh, with a couple uh, of green politicians who had been invited to the blockade, uh, the Wet'suwet'en blockade. Uh, one of them said that all of the elective chiefs who favored the project, who put their support behind the project, that none of those elected chiefs were still in those roles, which doesn't sound right to me since I'm talking to you today. Is that, is that correct? 
I mean, as as they may not be presented in in their positions. Of course, we have changeover in terms of the the positions that we that we have as elected leaders. However, the work that they've done cannot be go cannot go unnoticed in terms of the work that they that, that those leaders that that leadership completed in terms of the work for their nation. Um, they had visions of of what this project could do. And those visions are at the grasp of every elected leader that's that's sitting in in those seats today. Uh, do you think we would be having a similar conversation? And I realize it's a hypothetical, but if the tables were turned and it was the elected chiefs who opposed the project and the hereditary chiefs who were in favor, do you think we would be having the same conversations? I don't believe so. So what what do you think needs to be done to to move forward on this? I, I think in, in terms of the the solutions are the problem. The solutions need to be presented, and in order to get to solutions, conversations need to happen. So, in in terms of moving the project forward, um, continuously moving it forward, um, we we need to consider all aspects when and and get out the the proper information uh, in regards to to Coastal Gaslink and their project. And what is the proper information? The work that we've done uh, in terms to get us to where the project has that has, has gotten to, the the support, the the hours, the effort, um, elected leaders being able to not not be scared to speak their position as to why they they are supportive of this project. Uh, I think I'm I'm one of very many few elected leaders along along this project that are speaking up for this, for support for it. And that's not going without the backlash in social media or, or any other type of context of, of what is being said about me, what's being posted out there about me. So in, in terms of that, it's allowing and empowering those elected leaders to be able to, to give their voices without fear of being put in a position we can agree to disagree and do it respectfully. That's a part of our Indigenous culture, and that's not being displayed when it comes to support of this project. Uh, do you think there is a chance then, because the focus now seems to be on the hereditary chiefs, whether or not the Premier will meet with them or members of government, whereas it seems like maybe it would be more beneficial if hereditary chiefs and elected chiefs continued meeting or having conversations. What, what do you think would be most beneficial? Well, f- First and foremost, the the premier and his entire team have been meeting with with the hereditary leadership, along with the elected leadership. Um, but that does not go without saying that when this happened a year ago, I I took the stance that this is uh, would suit an issue, and all outside um, attention and support is only adding fuel essentially to to the issue. With certain people with certain members need to be empowered to be able to decide what the situation is within their community. All right. We will leave it there. Crystal Smith, you mentioned you get a backlash and uh, face that whenever you speak out. So I do really appreciate you joining us to talk about this and, and offer up your point of view. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. All right. Crystal Smith is a chief of the Heisla Nation. Well, we've been talking a little bit about the Granville Street Bridge and this option of West 
Side Plus. What exactly does that mean? Let's bring in Sarah Kirby Young, a Vancouver City Councillor. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. There were a bunch of options. People likely saw the artist renderings on possible future upgrades for the bridge. What do you think about this one, West Side Plus, that's now the preferred option? Well, sort of casting back when staff first brought um, options to council, and at that time, the option that was really preferred by staff was sort of what we call the Cadillac um, Rolls-Royce version that went down the middle of the bridge span. And uh, when they were presenting that option, and it, they presented us with one preferred option, we all asked, well, what, why can't we look at alternatives? And the question that I asked is, why are we not considering the sides of the bridges, and especially the west side? Because all the bridges in the world that I've walked over, and you think of the Sydney Harbour Bridge or London Bridge or all of those, they all enable pedestrians and cyclists to have that experience to be close to the water. Um, it gives you a buffer from traffic and traffic noise, and it gives you a chance to take advantage of those spectacular views. So um, council had asked for more options to go out for public consultation um, and to look at, and also from a cost perspective. Um, and when it came back, the public agreed um, that the West Side was their, by far their preferred choice. Were you surprised at all that the public was very much not uh, in favour of the going down the middle option? No, I was not surprised, not at all. It was just it was just one of those gut responses when I looked at it and I sort of thought, what? Um, I, I think just because I thought, well, who's going to want to be in the middle of all of that traffic? And also for a couple of reasons, people need to get off the bridges at the side. So that brought up the questions of how folks were going to cross over. And the other aspect, I think, coming from the park board before being on council was that ability to connect people to the water in a water city and try to have that continuous link between our different pathways so that people can sort of connect in if they're doing seawall walks on on either side. So it was just intuitive to me and it made sense. Um, So I I wasn't surprised at all. And I'm really glad that Anchorite stood up and had their say. Uh, It will take away, if this option goes forward, it will take away two lanes of traffic. Any concerns Is this, I know we constantly are told that this bridge is under capacity, but any concerns that that will cause some issues for people driving? Well, I think it, it is an eight-lane bridge, so it, it's it's fairly generous now. And you know, most Vancouverites have traveled often over all of those bridges. Um, it's built in 1954, but it it is the one that tends to be sort of the easiest to get over because it doesn't have the backups or the busyness. I guess is perhaps a better way of putting it that the Burrard and the Canby bridges have. So, you know, we've been assured by staff that there's more than enough capacity based on the travel patterns on that bridge. Um, and we also hear from pedestrians and especially people with accessibility issues that it's a scary bridge and they don't feel safe. Um, trying to traverse it. And one of those issues, too, is when you're walking, I, I know some people call the sidewalks alarmingly narrow, which I've never found the sidewalks that much of an issue, but you do have to cross where you kind of have to wait for a gap in traffic or hope that people stop for you. Uh, this will stop that as far as there'll be traffic signals, but is that also not a concern that that's going to kind of jam things up on the bridge? Yeah, no, I, we we asked that question, and, and apparently there we have the ability to coordinate those signals with traffic lights further down to minimize delays. Um, and I think with uh, sort of the enhanced uh, connections and sort of the better visibility, it's, it's actually going to be a safer and a, and a smoother option than it is now. Um, it's a bit hit and miss um, because you don't have signals and you have pedestrians darting out in traffic. And um, I don't know if you've ever come onto that on-ramp if you're coming off First Street onto the Granville Bridge. And it's scary coming around and seeing somebody dart in and, you know, trying to cross the road um, if you're in a car. So um, I, I think it'll actually end up being safer. And I think with the signalization, um, they're going to work really hard to ensure that the traffic flows smoothly. Uh, the amount of money, so from what I understand, $25 million has been approved for the redesign, but this particular model could cost up to $40 million. Where does that extra money come from? Well, that's going to be a big part of the conversation. And, and one thing I found um, is that 
these early level estimates tend to be low. Um, we find that in a lot of our infrastructure projects until they get into specific design. I think that originally the central line option was pegged at 50 to 60, significantly higher. Um, and this one, which is one of the reasons the council wanted to see options that were more cost effective and a more efficient use of of dollars that are being spent in the city. So um, it is, uh, the project funding is coming um, predominantly from transportation DCLs or development cost levies. Um, and when those funds are collected um, from developers, they specifically, they do need to be spent on that purpose. So that'll be the conversation with council around, um, is there sufficient um, other transportation DCL funding to support this? Um, what would the pacing of the project need to be as to when those funds are coming in and or what impact would it have on other projects? But you typically see that an kind of a tendency to underestimate and these projects do end up costing a bit more but it's by far the the uh, cost effective version of well far more so than the down the center of the gravel bridge and i think that would have had a very high price tag right but still 40 million dollars that's the upside and like you said things tend to to cost more or they tend to go towards the upside that's still a lot more than the 25 approved it, it is and i think that's one of the questions that council will be asking is you know what are options to sort of skinny that down um, where is the cost variation coming in and, you know, how could we potentially minimize that? So we don't have sort of full information on what's going to p- comprise the bulk of the cost there yet, but uh, we'll definitely be asking those questions to make sure dollars are well spent if the project goes ahead and council decides to approve it. All right. When do we expect to learn that? Uh, well, it, it's going out for additional public consultation now um, in the coming week, and then uh, it should come to council, I would imagine, quite shortly, probably in the next month or two. It will be on an agenda, but I don't have a date yet. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. All right. That is a look at the possible future of the Granville Street Bridge. Well, we've talked a lot about ride hailing, ride sharing, Uber and Lyft, and when and if the services will be permitted here in BC. But there are some concerns, particularly from people with disabilities, on whether or not the vehicles would be accessible. Justina Lowe is with the Disability Alliance BC and joins us on the line now. Justina, thanks so much for being with us. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting me. So what do you think the main, or what is the main concern for from people uh, being able to access uh, ride-sharing? Well, people with disabilities um, want to be able to access it like everyone else. They want to be able to go out, you know, to see friends, to go out to dinner, um, use it for medical appointments, for everything, just as everyone else can. Um, And the issue is that if uh, ride-hailing companies don't have any mandatory accessible vehicles or anything that ensures that people with disabilities um, can actually use the service, that means the service is not available to them. And it's it's a type of discrimination, and it's discouraging and disheartening. And so what about the, the issue of or the rule then being brought in that there would be a certain fee? Is it the 30-cent fee from each ride that would then be put into making accessible rides? You know, I mean, that that's one way to do it. Um, I don't think it's addressing the actual issue. I mean, the issue is that people with disabilities and people without disabilities should be able to access the ride-hailing companies. Um, just like with taxis, there's a certain percentage of the fleet that has to be accessible. I think it should be the same for ride-hailing as well. Um, so the fee, you know, while it's a nice attempt and it could be a possibly good idea, it's not really addressing the problem. Is that is that a difficult one, though, because, again, with the taxi fleets, and I suppose that's something that does make them different in that if you have an accessible cab, the cab driver, we hope, uh, knows exactly how to secure a wheelchair, knows how to deal with transporting somebody with a wheelchair or with a disability. Uh, is it fair or even reasonable to expect that somebody who's an Uber driver two or three hours a week has that same level of training? Well, the thing is, with the taxi companies, there has been training for taxi drivers to ensure that they're able to do that. 
So you're right, it might be a bit unreasonable, um, but that's why maybe there could be a percentage of the fleet of ride hailing um, where drivers do get to learn and, you know, get that training so that they are able to help people with disabilities. Um, Just because if it's a service that's coming into the city, it should be one that everybody can enjoy. And I agree with you. And I think, and on on the surface, that sounds completely reasonable. But how would it actually work in that? Would you have to require a certain number of Lyft drivers or Uber drivers to have vans? Uh, And it may come to that. I mean, it's possible um, that that could be a possibility uh, because that will allow for people, you know, with wheelchairs or mobility devices to be able to move around. Um, And it's maybe something that ride hailing companies should actually look at um, because people with disabilities do use cabs a lot and they would use the ride hailing service a lot to get around to different places. Um, So it's actually more than uh, it's actually an opportunity for them. Absolutely. Is it an example, though, of unfortunately people with disabilities, whether it's a wheelchair or a walker or some other kind of of device, um, I'm thinking of other things like, say, Airbnb or short-term rentals in that there might not be or there isn't the requirement there to have an accessible place that you would need, say, if it was a hotel or a government building. Uh, Is it another example that unfortunately in the so-called gig economy, uh, people with uh, disabilities aren't always accommodated? Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, People with disabilities are always the outliers. They're always thought of after um, when really we should be working um, and developing systems and practices right now that can address the problem. Because it's not only people with disabilities, but also seniors. Seniors are aging and they are becoming people with disabilities and they're needing more supports and services as well. So having accessible businesses, accessible Airbnbs, accessible taxis and such um, not only benefits people with disabilities, but also the seniors. Um, And we know that our population is aging. So this is an important sector of the population. Uh, Have you done anything as far as reaching out to Uber or Lyft or, or trying to have conversations with them about this? We have. We have had preliminary conversations with both of them. Um, and yet, it's been a bit difficult and challenging because, as you mentioned, um, they have you know just few requirements for their drivers, and they want to be able to ensure that many people can be drivers. So I think that's one of the challenges. Right, because we've even been talking about the fact that if they don't have thousands of drivers signing up, the app just at the most basic level won't work, the same as it works in other cities. And then when you, if you were to put in this other requirement, which again, makes total sense, and I think people are very on board with being inclusive, but you do have to wonder how is it going to work if this is a requirement as well. Right, no, and it will definitely be a challenge, but this would also be an opportunity for the taxi industry and the ride-hailing ones to collaborate together, and maybe it'll mean that um, people with disabilities have to rely more on taxis, so maybe taxis should increase their fleet of, you know, accessible taxis so that they can take those clients, and then maybe the ride-hailing services or companies, I mean, can take all the other clients. So it could be an opportunity for collaboration as well. Yeah. Is it a, is it a, a, an idea too, though, and not, perhaps not discrimination in that that's a strong word, but we've talked about this before as well, that oftentimes people with disabilities are on a fixed income or on a low income. They, they perhaps are working, maybe they're taking the cab to work. But when we talked about the, the possibility of a transit strike, one of the things that came up was that people with disabilities simply, in many cases, don't have the means to constantly take cabs everywhere. Is that an issue too, in that cab companies or perhaps ride sharing companies feel that there just isn't the market? 
Um, that could be a, that could be something because I agree a lot of people with disabilities are also living on low income and they do actually take public transportation a lot more. But I do think there's also a huge portion of uh, people with disabilities who do have income and they can afford to take cabs and they might need to take cabs once in a while from you know one place to another place if they're going out for a dinner or they're going out to see a show. And I think they should be able to access ride-hailing companies as well as other people who go out at night or to you know see shows and go to restaurants. Uh, have you been able to see, or are there any other jurisdictions with ride hailing or ride sharing that to have found a solution? Um, as far as I know of, no. Um, and I know it's a very complex issue and it's very challenging and there's a lot of different layers to this. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know about in other countries what they've done. Um, so far in Canada, I don't, I don't see other um, provinces that have been able to address this properly. Uh, and, because, and you mentioned this or touched on this as well. And even looking at buses that are accessible, obviously drivers know how to use the ramps and, and, and people are able to come in and secure a space on the bus. Uh, handy dart, the same thing. I just think, uh, and maybe there would be an insurance component as well, is that you're, if you're opening it up to strangers, I mean, it's one thing to take a ride share, to take an Uber, and you're simply getting into someone's car and then getting off at your destination. It's certainly another to have actual contact with the driver and that the driver is helping you into the car and securing you. Right, exactly. So that would be um, the component of training that would be so important so that they're able to safely um, help people and secure people in wheelchairs or secure people who are yeah, using mobility devices. So that would be a component of training that makes this situation much more complex. Well, it's an interesting uh, topic and certainly uh, one that uh, deserves uh, more discussion for sure. Uh, what about government? As far as you mentioned, you've had preliminary discussions with the companies. Uh, what about government and, and their thoughts on this? Um, well, we have been in touch with the Passenger Transportation Board, and we are just, you know, trying to work closely with government to ensure that the regulations are there um, and that, yeah, people with disabilities are still able to access either taxis or ride-hailing companies. Um, so I think it's a conversation that needs to be had um, between government and between, you know, the disability community or disability organizations, people with disabilities, as well as um, the taxi companies and the ride-hailing companies as well. All right. Well, we'll follow up on this uh, for sure and hopefully chat with you about it again. Justina, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you so much. Justina Lowe is with Disability Alliance BC.